Good morning, good morning to you, you. Good morning, good morning to you, you. Good morning, good morning. Won't you share with a friend or two? Good morning, good morning to you, you, good morning, good morning to you, you, good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome. I hope you're having a great and wonderful day. This is Daring Dialogues, and I'm your host, Shantae Charles. Again, it is Thursday, and we are in our Thinking Thursday, our Theology Thursday. And uh, I was going to get back into our reading. I may have some time today to do it. But I want to talk about a seemingly semi-viral topic. And I want to talk about this topic because it continues to, I would say, probably every 10 to 20 years, it keeps rotating in uh, the church body. I won't say it keeps rotating in spiritual circles, um, but I will say it keeps rotating in the church um, what people have framed as, you know, the organized religion um, the structural, the institutional church of tattooing. Um, so a little bit about my background. My background, um, my formal education is in art and in art education. And this is, believe it or not, one of the things that we talk about um, in art education. One of the things that I get an opportunity to teach on um, from the standpoint of art And I wanted to frame this conversation because we are not doing our regular um, readings today. We're talking about tattoos. So if you want to share this broadcast, um, please share it. (laughs) Because one thing I'm tired of is I'm so tired of religious people and this topic. I'm just going to be honest with you. So I'm going to try to do this topic justice in the 45 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes that I have. But again, my background is as an educator, an art educator, um, more specifically. Um, I've been doing this for 22 years now, and not just art, but various subjects, K through 12. But this is what I specialize in. This is what I went to school for, (laughs) degree earned. Um, So one of my courses that I had to take was about New Zealanders um, and specific arts of the Northeast, um, arts of the Papua New Guinea, arts of New Zealand. And this was really kind of before I, you know, really dedicated my life to becoming a believer. 
Now, I don't have any tattoos on my body, um, which is interesting because after I took this course and understood what tattooing was, I decided I made the choice that I wasn't going to get any tattoos um, because of what I learned, right? So knowledge is power. So whether or not you have tattoos, whether or not you plan on getting one, let's get some knowledge and education around it, right? So let's first talk about the history of tattooing really briefly. Tattooing has been practiced across the globe since the Neolithic times. Um, there have been, they have found mummies with tattooed skin, right? It's on the archeological record. And so both ancient art and archeological finds um, they have found possible tools that suggest that tattooing was practiced um, in the Upper Paleolithic period in Europe. Uh, some of it can be traced back to um, tattooed mummies found on the body of Otzi the Iceman. This is um, almost over 3,000 years ago. Other tattooed mummies have been recovered from at least 49 different archaeological sites including locations like the Greenlands, Alaska, Siberia, Mongolia, Western China, uh, Egypt, Sudan, the Philippines, and the Andes. So several cultures have participated in this ancient practice. So I want to start there. This is not something new. This is not an American culture issue, um, but it was an ancient practice. Okay, so it has been practiced throughout the world for millennia. Now, in 2018, the oldest figurative tattoos in the world were discovered on two mummies from Egypt, which were dated between 3351 and 3017 BC. Now, let's talk about why why and what kind of ancient practices this was, okay? Ancient tattooing was most widely practiced among the Austronesian people. It was one of the earliest technologies developed by pre-Austronesians in Taiwan and South Coastal China prior to at least 1500 BCE, okay? <clears throat> it may have originally been associated with headhunting, Tattooing traditions, including facial tattooing, which you often see among the Taiwanese Aborigines, um, Southeast Asians, Micronesians, Polynesians, and the Malagasy people. So for most part, these, especially the ones that were put on the face, which is what I basically studied in my collegiate studies, those were either to identify an individual almost like we use a fingerprint today and we'll talk about that they would some cultures call them a moko the maori call theirs a moko because theirs is not just um it's not just a pointed needle into the skin it's literally a chisel into the skin and so what it does is it creates an original unique chiseling for that person and oftentimes it would be the leaders of 
um, a particular group of people that would get the full moco. And that leader, when he would, you know, have meetings or whatever, especially with outsiders, in order to sign treaties or agreements or whatever, they he would ink his face and he would press his face onto the document. And that moco on his face became his seal or his signature or his print. Okay. So I just want to um, give you that part. Ancient tattooing traditions have also been documented among the Papuans and the Melanesians with their use of obsidian skin piercers. Some archaeological sites um, have been associated with them, but other sites are older. Now let's talk about traditional practices. In North America, the indigenous people here in North America have a long history of tattooing. It was not a simple marking on the skin. It was a process that highlighted a cultural connection to indigenous ways of knowing and viewing the world. It connected them to their family, to their society, and to their place. For the North Americans, the oldest known physical evidence of tattooing was made through the discovery of a frozen mummified Inuit female on St. Lawrence Island, Alaska, who had tattoos on her skin. Okay. Early explorers to North America made ethnographic observations of the indigenous people they met. Initially, they did not have a word for tattooing and, and instead described the skin modifications as a pounce, a prick, a mark, or a raised skin, or to stamp, to paint, to burn, and to embroider. All right. So again, these are white people. <laughs> <clears throat> seeing these indigenous people and these were their descriptions of them. Okay, let's keep going. I'm going to keep going. So the Inuit have a deep history of tattooing. In the Inuit language of the Eastern Canadian Arctic, the, world, the word katnidit translates to the English word for tattoo. It means face tattoo. Among the Inuit, some tattooed female faces and parts of the body to symbolize a girl transitioning into a woman or coinciding with the start of her first menstrual cycle. This is also true, by the way, in the Maori culture, the woman gets, rather than getting a full face, the woman gets a tattoo on her chin to mark her coming of age as a woman or having the ability to bear children, okay? I, and I'm going to pause and um, also go back and kind of show you some of the images here. So let's talk again about, I want to go to, we know that tattooing, right, is tattoo is connected to your culture, is connected to your family, etc. Tattooing really doesn't hit the United States or really doesn't really connect to the United States until they start using it to identify people in war conditions. We started, our culture, modern United States culture, started using the practice of tattooing as a way to identify a dead body. So if you were, um, if something happened to you during the war process, many times the soldiers would get a tattoo 
as an identifying marker so people could identify their body if something happened to them where they became pretty unrecognizable, okay? So it wasn't this thing of connection to a culture, connection to a family. It wasn't a coming of age uh, ritual initially for us. I want to go to the New Zealand people. So the Maori people of New Zealand, again, they practice a form of tattooing known as the tamoko, and it's traditionally created with chisels. Um, again, this is also a part of their coming of age process. And I will tell you from what I learned in um, listening to the Maori people, listening to their own interviews of them talking about the process, um, they call the process bloodletting. It's seen as a ritual form of bloodletting as it is in most cultures. If you want to, you know, look up all the different cultures and how they practiced it, um, Wikipedia does have a really good listing of the history of tattooing from several different cultures. But one of the things that they pointed out about this process is that it is a bloodletting process. It is not just about, I'm going to get a drawing on my skin. It's not just about, um, I'm doing something that's cool. It's a bloodletting ritual for many of these cultures. Okay. What does that mean? Here is how they described it. They said, as you release blood from your body, it is believed that you are allowing whatever spirit that you are inscribing upon you to enter into you. So in the process of bloodletting, you are taking on the spirit of whatever it is you're inscribing upon yourself. So oftentimes, if they were inscribing, you know, animals or whatever images, they felt that they were taking on the energetic spirit of that particular animal as they were releasing their blood. So they saw it as a spiritual process to obtain the spirit of something else within. <laughs> Let me just let that sit for a moment. I know some I know people going to have a hard time with this. But before you go do something, you might want to understand what it is you're doing beside past religious leaders telling you that it's okay to do it. Okay? So when I heard the people who actually practiced this for thousands of years talk to talk to us about what this process actually is. It is a ritual form of releasing your blood. That's what you're doing. It's a ritual form of releasing your blood. And in that bloodletting process, you are supposed to be allowing a spirit within you of whatever it is that you are engraving upon yourself. Okay? So when I heard this, I was not a, a believer at the time, but when I heard the explanation around why people do this, 
or what is the significance of it, I made a personal choice to say, hmm, well, I had considered getting a tattoo. I actually had considered getting a Superman S right at the center, at the top, at the center of my back. And I was planning to do it. And then I took this course and the rest is history. Because what I decided in that moment was, hmm, do I want the spirit of Superman? <laughs> Mm-mm. We got whole songs that say I'm not your superwoman. So did I want did I want the nature or the character of that in the process of letting out my blood? I didn't want it. Okay. So then people ask the question, well, is this a, what they call, is this a salvific issue? Is this going to send you to hell? I don't think it will. I don't see anything in scripture that says it's going to send you to hell. What I will say is, um, if you understand the practice and you still choose to go through with it, then you have to decide your conscience is really going to be the guide on this. Now, there are scriptures that talks about how God has engraven us upon himself. Um, it talks about how he has written us, engraven us upon the palms of his hands. And people use that and they say, well, if God has tattooed us on his hands, then I can get a tattoo, right? But I... I say to myself, God has enough tattoos for all of us. Again, that's my perspective. I say Jesus took enough (laughs) tattoos for me. He took enough scars for me. He took enough wounds for me that um, I'm good over here. I don't need to use that as as a reason to say, I'm going to get a tattoo because I see these verses in scripture. There's also a verse that says that you should not be marking your body for the dead or in memory of the dead. Most people actually do mark their bodies. If they do get a tattoo, a lot of times people are doing it in memory of the dead. But again, are these salvific issues? Are these issues going to send you to hell? I don't believe, according to the scriptures, I don't believe that they are salvific issues. Now, beyond that, I find it very interesting and very problematic when we have spiritual leaders who have preached one thing for so many decades. We're probably talking about 40 or four decades, 40 years or four decades. I find it problematic to then rewind on what you have been teaching only to justify your personal choice because one thing this this leader did was they said this is a choice between me and God and when I stand before God God is the one that I'm going to be giving an account to as to what I put on my body and that is true which leads me to ask If it is a personal choice between you and God, then why get up into your pulpit and announce it to the world? If it's a personal choice between you and God, 
then why are we having this public discourse about a choice that was made between you and God? <laughs> I mean, that's the logic that I'm using. Um, the other part of this is, you know, are we in some way, now that we understand that these are ancient practices, are we in some way disrespecting the cultures by which these practices come from because we want a nice colorful thing on our body? Are we disregarding the sacredness of the practice that's in other cultures? Because I'm telling you, if somebody took sacred practices from Christianity and just appropriated it into whatever they wanted to do without any regard for the sacredness of the practice, oh, we would have a whole lot of issue and people would be pushing back on it. But yet, tattooing is an ancient sacred practice to those cultures. It is not just a pretty drawing. It ties into a spiritual practice for them. So I want us to actually think about that and not just um, look at it from just the modern American iterations of what the tattoo has become, but understand that these things trace back to other people's ancient spiritual practice. Which is maybe a reason why this could have been a, a this could have been a reason why in the scriptures you see the text saying don't do this practice it could have been that reason of differentiate differentiating excuse me those who were following Yahweh Yeshua Yehoshua it could have been a differentiation between those who were following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and these other gods. Because it was an ancient spiritual practice. It wasn't just um, what America often does to other people's culture, is we whitewash the meanings and the practices, and we use the modalities. We've done the same thing to yoga. <laughs> yoga is another culture's spiritual practice. But what have we done over here? We've washed it and made it an exercise. So I just want us to um, think about these things. I didn't want to go through the whole thing because this would take way more than an hour to talk about. But you can look up history of tattooing and you can actually read about all of the different ancient cultures that this practice is a part of and what they see it as and most of them talk about it as spiritual practice. So the larger question would be, if you are getting a tattoo, are you doing it or do, are you recognizing that it is a spiritual practice? It is not just, I'm getting a drawing done. Okay. I know it has been portrayed that way by a lot of people, but it's simply not the case. All right. I do want to finish up this last part of this reading of this chapter in Black Theology and Black Power, and then I'm going to turn it over for some discussion. We have been talking about 
the white church and black power and this is our last segment within this part of the reading when we come back hopefully next thursday we'll be looking at the black church and black power right now we're looking at the white church and white power it is overlooked the unique problem of the powerless black people in this new era of black power the era in which blacks are sick of white power and are prepared to do anything and give everything for freedom now theology cannot afford to be silent not to speak not to do theology around this critical problem is to say that the black predicament is not crucial to christian faith at a moment when blacks are determined to stand up as human beings even if they are shot down the word of the cross certainly is focused upon them will no one speak that word to the dead and dying theologians confronted by this question may distinguish three possible responses some will timidly or passionately continue to appeal to paul's dictum about the powers that be we will have law and order theologians as we have law and order pastors and laymen others will insist that theology is such is necessarily unrelated to social upheaval these men will continue as in a vacuum writing footnotes on the aramaic substratum of mark's gospel or on the authorship of the theologica germanica or on the phenomenon of faith could a black man hope that there are still others who as theologians will join the oppressed in their fight for freedom these theologians will speak unequivocally of revelation scripture god christ grace faith ministry hope ecclesia so that the message comes through loud and clear the black revolution is the work of christ if theology fails to reevaluate its task in the light of black power the emphasis on the death of God will not add the need the needed dimension. This will mean that the white church and white theology are dead, not God. It will mean that God will choose another means of implementing his word of righteousness in the world. It will also mean that the burden of the gospel is placed solely on the shoulders of the oppressed without any clear word from the church. This leads us to our last concern, the black church. It is indeed possible that the only redemptive forces left in the denominational churches are to be found in the segregated black churches. Remember, he's writing this in 1968. The white response so far in and out of the church is not yet, which in a twisted rhetoric of the land of the free means never. Law and order is the sacred incantation of the priests of the old order and the faithful respond with votes higher police budgets, and Gestapo legislation. Private and public arsenals of incredible destructive force testify to the determination of a sick and brutal people to put an end to black revolution and indeed to black people. The black man has violated the conditions under which he is permitted to breathe and the air is heavy with the potential for genocide. The confrontation of black people as real persons is so strange and out of harmony with the normal pattern of white behavior that most whites cannot even begin to understand the meaning of black humanity. In this situation of revolution and reaction, the church must decide where its identity lies. Will it continue its chaplaincy to forces of oppression, or will it embrace the cause of liberation, proclaiming in word and deed the gospel of Christ? Now, here we are. This is 1968. Here we are in 2020, and we are literally seeing white people choose the side of the oppressor. Like 
There's no other way to kind of put that, right? We're seeing white people choose to believe lies. So let me go as we close out. As I close out, I want to show you some images This is one. I'll pull this out for right now. This is a book called A Brief and True Report of the Newfound Land of Virginia, showing a painting by John White. The markings on the skin represent tattoos that were observed on the people. This is early Virginia. Hopefully you can see that. And let's see. I want to show you the ones that are this is in the Philippines All right Philippines and those of you who are listening by anchor I want to thank you for your time and attention today remember Light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so continue to go out and be light. Take care and God bless.